episode 24 episode of the Burley Fisher podcast. I am, as ever, your gentle host, Daniel Fuller, and I'm joined by Dr. Somaya and Mr. Samuel Fisher. Welcome both. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. I feel very formal sitting here wearing four layers of pyjamas, enjoying the brisk chill. <laughs> we, we do like to keep it formal here, um, respectful. <laughs> Inside the Arctic vortex. Indeed, yeah. Well, we're I, we're talking about a an episode today that really ranged across like doctors and you know academic thought and formal thought and brilliant new forms of writing. So, I it's a it's definitely a pretty thinky one. It is. It is. They're two intellectual heavyweights. Uh, I should say this are. Lucy Ives and Chloe Regis, and you kind of really get this sense of two big brains colliding uh, on the stage. Yeah, it was extraordinary being uh, in the room with them at our incredible partner venue, Young Space, um, uh, just after one of the heaviest rainstorms that I think I've experienced in summer in London, uh, and the venue has a, a glass roof. So, but it just magically, the rain stopped uh, as they began sharing their thoughts. And there was just this incredible rapt silence in the audience and some great questions, which you're gonna get to hear. And the event was also in aid um, of launching a prize that we should, we should say, um, we should from prototype press one of our very favorite um colleague presses um so uh, the prize is now live i don't know so if you would mind telling us a little bit more about the nature of the sure prize. so the prototype prize is a new biennial prize for published or unpublished writers and artists who are working across different literary and artistic forms it's open for writers or artists resident in the uk or ireland and it was three grand plus publication by prototype to the best book length project and there's a second prize for short form work which is two grand uh and publication by monitor books um and both prize winners will get published by Freeze magazine who are the partner on the prize and the judging panel is incredible it's a chance to be read by Banu Kapil, Tom McCarthy and Elizabeth Price so this is just genius from Prototype who've published some of the most um, exciting forward-thinking experimental writers uh, and are our neighbours and we're really proud um, to share a neighbourhood with them uh, and it's co-funded by Arts Council England as our festival was so it just felt so exciting to celebrate this as the opening night of the festival a new prize for new writing by new and established writers that could lead to publication that we might celebrate at a future festival um and this is this is what BF Day was all about is uh erasing those borders between uh, I'm a reader and I'm a writer that anyone could be a writer anyone could be a reader you might be sitting next to someone in the audience who's gonna is thinking about writing the next great book that you come to a reading for and the prototype prize is is making that happen so hats off to them the submissions deadline listeners is the first of February so if you've got a manuscript in progress if you've got short form in progress go to prototypepublishing.co.uk check out the prize page and all the formal information is there. Importantly, the deadline is 23.59 on the 1st of February. Get your words in, 23.59 GMT. So yeah, and it was also really great 
to have this at Young Space, which is the space that we've done a bit of work with as a bookshop. Uh, yeah, Sam, do you want to? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's an exciting new kind of space for um, creators, whether whether they be fashion, music, um, or writers as well. Um, it's run by the record label Young, and they're kindly. Uh, they very kindly hosted the event for us um, and hopefully we'll be working with them again. So I just want to say thank you um, for partnering um, with us on that. Um, and I also, of course, have to mention that um, Lucy Ives' very excellent book, um, Life is Everywhere, is published by another one of my favourite partners, <laughs> uh, <laughs> i.e. me. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure. Full disclosure. Um, so if you uh, are as blown away as I was by Lucy when you listen to this podcast, please, please do go uh, and find Life's Everywhere in, in, all, in all good bookshops, <laughs> including <laughs> Bellish <Yeah>. Book. <laughs> and uh, a special thank you to Gareth Evans for chairing the event. A very special thank you. And Gareth also published um, Chloe Arrigis's most recent book, uh, Diary of a Synambulist with House Barry Press. Um, and I, but I think this was the first time they'd been in conversation uh, about it and about what is shared by Chloe's writing and Lucy's writing and this incredible explosion of writing about and through visual art and the history of art to think about questions of the connection between the political and the personal, like really wide ranging, long-sighted writing. And that was what we were hoping for from the event. And that was, that was what we got. Right, well then without further ado, let's hand over to Gareth, Chloe and Lucy. writers anyway and why would you want to buy their books well we'll find out why you want to buy the books of course because they're going to tell us about them very shortly but who they are lucy ice has come all the way from the united states to be here for this event can we give lucy a round of applause please <laughs> incredible incredible scenes here incredible scenes here thank you so much lucy arrived last night flying back at the end of the weekend this is why lucy is here today uh, to be with us now lucy uh, as so said, is published by peninsula press the kind of the uh, publication outpost of the, the Burley Fisher operation, incredible, linked um, very closely with uh, that amazing bookstore and uh, creative hub. So Lucy has published, uh, this was published by Grey Wolf in 2022. It was a New York book of the year, among many other things. And it's got incredible endorsements. Lynn Tillman, Peninsula Press writer. Lynn loves it. Alejandro Zambra loves it. Purcell Everett loves it. Everybody loves Life is Everywhere. That's all you need to know about Life is Everywhere because Lucy will tell you much more. <laughs> Chloe Ridges, right, is a Mexican writer or, or with multiple parentages and multiple homes and locations of operation. Now, Chloe's book has just had the most incredible endorsement in the Paris Review by Zadie Smith last week. Zadie Smith got a hold of this and she says, this is incredible. Why isn't everyone reading it? Well, let's hope they are now and you are by the end of the evening. Now, Chloe and Lucy have both published in a nice, nicely symmetrical way, three novels each. This is uh, not uh, Chloe's most recent novel. Chloe's most recent novel is Sea Monsters, 
they publish novellas, they publish short stories, they publish collections of essays. They've got incredible article lives online, and they both have this intersectional engagement uh, with writing. Interestingly for me, Lucy also was, was, I think, an editor at Triple Canopy. Now, some of you will know Triple Canopy. It's an incredible site in America. Now, I didn't think it was really a real thing with real people behind it because it just seemed like it had come from nowhere. I thought, how, you know, it's just so cool, it's so American, it's brilliant, it's progressive, it's ahead of everything. And Lucy actually edited that stuff. It's incredible to me. I mean, so it's all good, basically, is what I'm trying to say. It's all good. But let's cut to the chase. Now, Lucy and Clay, thank you very much indeed for being with us. These seats, are, by the way, are very comfortable. So if, if I slightly sort of zone out a little bit at some point, just fill that space. Fill that space anyway with thoughts, comments, questions, responses. I went around earlier just telling you about the timing and urged you to think about those words, art writing, in whatever combination you'd like. So let's keep that in the air. Um, and just kind of, you know, we're in a small space here. We're in a huge space. Young space goes on forever in all directions. But we're in an intimate salon space here. So please just say, say something if you'd like to. You know, just say it, just speak, you know, and that will pick it up and then just wave or do something anyway. And just let's have a conversation thing, shall we? We've got some readings from Lucy and Chloe, but I'd like to ask both of you before we get onto the books in question what is art writing? You go first. Lucy, you go for it. What is it? What is it? I'm feeling a little unprepared here, although I've been doing this for a while. What is art writing? Well, um, it's something that you do to explain what happens to you when you're uh, in a gallery space or a museum and, and something has, has been placed there for your fill-in-the-blank. Is it your entertainment? Um, is it there to make you think deep thoughts? Is it there to help you understand yourself? Is it there to express something about history or the nation that you happen to be a part of. Um, art writing is something that uh, I guess exists in that um, potentially frightening void that is the uh, encounter that you're having with something that's supposedly important that's, that's in front of you. Um, it's something that's professionalized in, in various ways and, and people do it to make money. Um, I've sometimes done it to make money. But it's also something that you might do if um, you've run out of uh, possibilities in the human social world. And you might be uh, going into a museum or a gallery hoping to uh, confront something that would explain what all of this is to you. So it, it has that, that function, too. Um, I think what I just said helps you understand a little bit about why I would be involved in it, or, or, or how it is, how is it, it has functioned in my life. I'm I'm somebody who is who was born and grew up in New York, and one of the things that used to be free that you could do was to go to a museum. So free to go to commercial art galleries, and so uh, as a young person, that was that was where I spent a lot of time. That was like my um, my after-school program was going to museums and things. And uh, I started to get interested in um, understanding what was happening there when I, when I was in those places. And that's how, how I started writing about art. So that's how I, how I see it. 
Thank you. That's a, that's a great a great kind of launch pad for us. I mean, Chloe, does that kind of chime with how you think about it? Yes. Although I would just add that so, <clears throat> um, I have I've never thought of myself as a professional art writer, and it somehow s slowly happened um, every now and then. But I would just add that I've often written about paintings or works that I haven't seen face to face in, in books, and. Um, and I guess for me, it's been very much also entering, just looking at things, entering a space differently and looking at something differently than you would um, the world around you, that you're entering a sort of a finite space and um, trying to unpack its mystery or, or see why, what responds in it, what within you responds to it in some way. So I didn't, um, so for me, I didn't, well, I'd written my, my, um, my dissertation on, on two magicians, so I'd written about magic shows and magic tricks, and I was thinking visually a lot about, um, well, sort of in visual metaphors about um, different mental processes. But it wasn't until um, probably just uh, Leonora Carrington that I slowly began writing about especially painting. Mm -hmm. And in another life, I would have loved to have been a painter. And that's my, my great frustration in life is not being able to paint. So to occasionally be able to write about painting is um, a, a huge release and um, quite therapeutic. Do you feel that displacement kind of in operation as well, Lucy, the idea that you can inhabit this textual space with, you know, the whole range of contemporary practice, uh, almost as a a way of you know getting as close as you can without necessarily the 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 full desire or, or the opportunity even to to then take it into that medium itself you're you're asking if writing is a way of vicariously being a, a visual artist that's way better isn't it i mean what you just said is so much more concise <laughs> I just, I just, I, that's why you're an editor that's why you would triple down <laughs> incredible that's it yeah exactly right thank you very much i mean i I just want to make sure that I'm answering no, the right question. No, that's better. That's we're a dealing, better question. Forget the one I We're one dealing with some big stuff here, so I want to, I want to try to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's bigger now. You've said it, right? You've raised the stakes. Uh, yeah. Sure, I want to be a visual artist. I, I, yeah, I always wanted to do that, but um, it seemed like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to uh, sail on those seas, I think. Um, and I, I found... Uh, writing, it's easier to hide as a writer, and for me at least, to portray myself in, in different sort of devious ways mm -hmm. through language, and I was never good at that visually. I was very obvious. Like I would have, if I were gonna do something as a visual artist to represent what's happening right now, like I would just make a painting of you and like make, <laughs> um, like you know, numinous light shooting out of your face or something like that. Like that would have been my representation of this this evening, and we all see why. You know, that would have been an excellent work of art, but well. it would have been. I, I don't know. Like I, I think I would have got really tired. You know, if everything that I had done had been you know super realistic portraiture. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. Um, I've been trying to get my English correct over the past uh, 24 hours, but I wouldn't have thriven. Is that correct? I would not have thriven as a as a painter. I would not have thrived. 
What do you guys think? Can we get some thrive? Thank you. Thank you so much. I would not have. I would neither have thrived nor thriven. Um, I think let's bring thriven back. It sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have been anymore. But, but, but yet, like to me, there's something. There's something about the visual world that is so like it's so obvious and it's so exciting to me and its obvious particularities. And there's something about being able to go into language which is visual, you know, as a as a medium. It's like visual in print and in, and in handwriting. But what's happening in a word is so complex from the point of view of the image, and it's something that. Um, has has oral or sonic qualities. It, it's something that has all of these like associations to do with it, and it's like this incredible sort of multi-dimensional, multi-temporal, um, trans-historical kind of hut where I can go and hide, you know, whatever I am, and and, and do something different there. So I chose that. Thank you. No, no, thank you very much. I mean, we, we'll, we, you know, we're going to continue this conversation, but while we, we're with you, Lucy, let's, let's hear your first reading, if we could, because your book <laughs> totally does. I mean, what you've just said, I mean, it, it takes on every possible form. It's a hall of mirrors. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a story within a story, a book within a book, a novella, and a novel within a novel. Um, give us a flavor, if you could, and then we'll talk about the book, obviously, in due course. Um, I'm gonna choose. I'm trying to choose something. You know what? I'm gonna read from a novel that's within yeah. the book, yeah. and I'm gonna read a passage where. Um, so the the protagonist of this book, Life Is Everywhere, is a writer, and there are two books that she has written that are included in full in in the book, and they're they're not books. They're manuscripts, and they're rejected manuscripts. So actually, they're terrible books, but. Unfortunately, fortunately, you have to you have to read them and enjoy her, you know, uh, juvenilia. And I'm going to read a scene from the second novel, which includes some artworks and is about the uh, unnamed protagonist's relationship with her then husband, who's an artist, and his name is Cody. It seems insensitive bordering on delusional of me when I look back now not to have recognized this fundamental fact about the person I was married to. But to me, Cody was the man I was always going to know. He wasn't anything more or less than this. His proclivities, interests, dreams were fundamentally unimportant in the sense that they could not sway me. My plan was to leave him free. Cody purchased a bag of cement and brought home scrap wood. I fretted about the state of our apartment. Cody said he'd get a studio as soon as feasible. He said he thought he had some leads. He was cooking pasta and demolishing a six-pack baseball on the radio. He was not devoid of charm. In my conception of the world, which was in fact a conception inherited from my parents, the meaning of one's interest in art was summed up by one's ability to avoid, one, making art, and two, identifying as an artist. If one could not avoid the first, it was at least necessary not to do the second. I was, in the meantime, fairly proud of myself. I, quiet and mediocre, did neither. For this reason, the meaning of my interest in art was that I was a good person. I was so much better than Cody. I didn't have to be an artist because I was already and so extremely perfect. 
I clung to this notion, unconsciously sniffing and lightly licking it, polishing my sorrows as if they were a charm. Cody had no such pretensions. His repulsive desk was now stacked high with paint-filled yogurt containers, jars of screws, and bitty litter he had collected from New York City sidewalks, a rusted hacksaw, and an assortment of weary pliers, cloudy plastic sacks of colored sand, acrylics and cans of enamel, unused brushes, broken pencils, plywood fragments, balls of twine and coils of salvaged wire, sculpting clay, copper mesh, candle wax, bags of blonde hair covered with candle wax, gouache and charcoal sticks, faux bois paper, newspaper, pots of black ink, cardboard covered with white paint, tacks, deconstructed leather bindings, boards, cut out end papers embellished with pasted papers, pasted on cloth mounted on wood, partially painted wood, painted plaster and cork mounted on canvas but abandoned, a stuffed silk stocking suspended in a wooden frame, several plaster heads with painted cloth, googly eyes, two steel rods, part of a wooden chair hung on a board, a piece of a door covered in hessian, laminated plastic bits, masonite, oils, unidentifiable plastic objects, a neon tube, a plastic rod, felt, cord, cotton, a dented pail, a sack, dust, cassette tapes, paper mache on a rubber hose, a broken tree limb, white tape, duct tape, galvanized metal, fiberglass, toy motors, a section of artificial turf, a formica pedestal, a non-functioning surveillance camera, a dish of green glitter, felt markers, muslin, printouts of various websites, mirrors, several live flowering plants, corrugated cardboard, oil wash, rags, painted foam core, pornographic DVDs in a paper bag labeled, labeled private. I did not know how the heap had arrived. One day it was a desk, now it was something else. Because I continued to work full time, I was seldom in the apartment when Cody was not, and for this reason, was never truly alone with the desk. In the morning, I would pass it by on my way to the door and would note that it had a funny, knowing look. The lips on the smile it did not have curled back. It seemed to want to let out a bestial cry. The desk was a double. It was the malingerer Dostoevsky, though not Flaubert, would have encountered on an urban street. In the 21st century, it had moved inside our home. Like a dune, it shifted. It had something to do with the internet. What's in the bag? I asked one Sunday. What bag? Cody emerged from the kitchen. The bag on your desk. Cody was holding a spoon, presumably because he was fixing pancakes. Which bag on my desk? He ran his tongue around the implement. He had a point. I indicated the private bag. Sometimes a person, he told me, needs space. Is this your space? I asked. Perhaps I was flirtatious. Perhaps I edged toward the private bag. Or perhaps the scene did not take place. Instead, I looked inside the bag one day. The titles of its contents had things like the word come smelled, spelled with a K, the mention of youth, stuff about butts. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lucy. Now, I mean, there already is a really strong flavor of what the book does, which is this kind of attempt to take on the whole of life, right? I mean, as the title suggests, we'll come on to some of those kind of um, 
uh, fellow travellers in a minute. But Chloe, that sense of, of you know the, po the, the total possibility of writing, you share that that sense, and and I, I mean I, I feel that you do. And 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 how does the form of a piece find its shape? How, how does it find its its kind of its terrain, its territory, a story as as indefinable piece as prose poem as portrait <coughs> etc. What's your sense of how that how the kind of energies gathered for the writing? Well, that's um, the pursuit of form is always uh, I find the greatest challenge often, especially with novels, and it's, it takes me the longest to find the right form of shape. And but I think. Um, <coughs> In all three novels, the protagonists, their professions in some way, or their, well, I guess the third novel, she's 17, but she, but sort of their, um, their preoccupations in daily life somehow shape the, the thought patterns. So this, in, so in Asunder, the book, and the novel I'm going to read from, uh, I thought a lot about what form and what, what structure to give the thoughts of a museum guard who spends all day in the gallery and um, thoughts meander and then they return to certain things and um, and then like in the, those medieval panels where there's different scenes of a saint's life in just one panel and somehow uh, so the past and present um, somehow coexists in your mind mm -hmm. in those moments and um, and they're often quiet moments, but every now and then there's a bit of drama. And, but anyway, I was trying to think, so this book in particular, it took me a very long time to figure out the right structure, and it was very much trying to imagine the, sort of the contours of, of um, this woman's, the museum guard's thoughts. And, um, so... Should we, should we hear it? Sure. Extract? That's great. Um, so I said the narrator of this book is named Marie, and she's a female museum guard at the National Gallery. And um, I guess whenever they ask me what the novel's about, I say, um, well, one of the things it's about is her slow revolt against the passivity in her life, both in her profession and in her emotional life. And her, her great-grandfather, Ted, was a, a warder in the National Gallery when Mary Richardson attacked the Rokeby Venus. So she's haunted by the specter of the suffragettes mm -hmm. and um, but anyway but but um, she focuses well I guess I'll read you the passage first and then but um, she becomes quite obsessed with um, what I'm about to read and um, and I was thinking a lot about um, yeah I guess the spaces of tension where tension accumulates mm -hmm. and, and in the museum and so so she's sitting um, <coughs> she's well one day at work and um, Ted, that's her great-grandfather, Ted had been pacing in my thoughts that afternoon when the art restorer entered the room with her students. Along with my great-grandfather, it would be this woman who in room 65 of the Sainsbury Wing shed light on an obscure aspect of the museum. Mid-fifties, attractive with straight chestnut hair, she stopped in front of a small fanike, an intriguing portrait of a man in a red turban, possibly the artist himself, a painting I had always liked despite knowing little about it. The students found out and pinned their eyes on the subject. From my chair, I watched and listened. Paintings, too, are vulnerable to the ravages of time, the restorer began. They crack and they flake, their colors change, things fade or darken. 
Any work you see today will have looked rather different when it was created. And if you look closely, not too closely, you will note that just about every painting in this gallery contains a vast network of cracks. And these cracks, she went on, are what we call crackalure. She spelled out the word, a dozen hands took note. Inherent crackalure, the release of stress, occurs with age. As you know, most of the tension in a painting is located in its four corners. Accidental crackalure, such as spiral cracks and spider cracks, is the result of external impact. The hands continue to swivel. Look at this, Van Eyck. Your attention is probably first drawn to the red turban, to the magisterial way in which each fault has been painted. From there, you move on to the face. It is more cracked than wrinkled, you can see. The paint's age shows even more than the man's. This type of grid crackler is created when primary cracks, which follow the direction of the brush stroke, and secondary cracks run in right angles to one another. Aging cracks often follow the lines established by drying cracks. Remember, mechanical forces will always seek out the path of least resistance. Some, st some students leaned forwards, pressing dangerously close to the fanite. My impulse to intervene and ask them to take a few steps back was crushed by my fever to hear more. Over time, the art restorer continued, I hope you will all learn to identify fake crackler, which forgers add to painting in order to give it the illusion of age. They scrape the edge of the canvas on a table, bake it in the oven, and sprinkle sugar on top until the surface cracks in just the right way. There are other techniques too, but this is one of the simplest and most effective. Yet in the words of the great Friedländer, forged crackler is arbitrary, monotonous, and pedantic whereas natural crackler throbs with rich variety. So, to conclude, crackler grants a painting its history, its authenticity, a whole topography the painter himself could have never envisioned. When they left the room 20 minutes later, I closed my eyes in order to process her words. Like a hot grill, the image of the fanite pressed into my eyelids despite the cracks being indistinguishable from where I sat in my chair. After hundreds and hundreds of hours in the gallery, how had I failed to consider something so vital? I'd always been drawn to decomposition, to the knowledge that everything in the universe tends from order to disorder, like England, and the thought, <laughs> and the thought of the hour of time also moving through paintings overwhelmed me. Painters create order from disorder, but the moment that order has been created, the slow march towards disorder begins again. I've been handed a secret, Visitors could stand and admire what they saw on the walls, point out to one another the various colors and compositions, but my inner lens would now be trained on something more hidden, an intimacy between me and the paintings that a thousand gazes could not disturb. I'd always sought quiet in the world, and there were few movements quieter, I realized, than paint cracking over time. Great, thank you very much. I mean, it's really a useful way of thinking about um, process and artifice, which I think both of you as writers, you know, are fascinated by and engage with in really interesting ways. I mean, Lucy, thinking about that idea of the, you know, the constructed, forged, um, and your constructing in your book, of course, all sorts of tiers and, and kind of steps of meaning and relation. Um, when did that? When did I mean? You do talk about it in the in the in the in the afterword at the end. But, but when did this idea of this vast edifice come about? And it's many many chambers because it's. It is a huge undertaking and not a casual one by any means. Yeah, uh, well, I'll kind of reiterate some of the confessions that I make in the, in the afterword, which is that uh, at a certain period of 
my life, I became obsessed with an imaginary poet who was a French person who lived in the mid-19th century and had um, a terrible gambling problem, which he had to um, flee by emigrating to the United States. And in part, he was uh, searching for uh, a relative who owed him money. And the hope was that this relative would die or be dead, and uh, then he would be able to get this money. And he had this poet had sad, he had a sad, droopy mustache. Um, Did he suddenly come to you? In the I don't know where he came from. I mean, his name, his name was um, uh, Le Gouf, which um, can a, a void or can you know refer to entrails. He was. Uh, He's the kind of abyss, I, and I don't know where he. Which sounds like in, in English, it sounds like the, you know, the goof or something like that. Which is That's a very Baudelarian term. Yeah, he's a yeah. I don't know where he came from, but um, unfortunately, I could not write his uh, realistic historical fiction. I lacked the skills, uh, the time, and uh, the patience to do that. And so I, I started writing a book about um, a, failed, a failed writer instead, which had a lot of different kinds of materials in it. Um, I, I've always been really interested in fictions that have fictions inside of them or have people who are, on, who are unreal, who are making their own artworks inside of them. And I, I have a particular affection for, for these un unrealized, un unreal, um, and yet fully realized artworks that exist within side fictions. And so I wanted to make a world in which you could have so many tiers of, of unreality uh, that you know, it would no longer be possible to say that the artwork was simply created by a character, but that there were artworks that were created by a character that contained other characters who created artworks that contained um, artworks that were created by other characters that were, and so on and so forth. And I, I wanted to, to make a place in which the distinction between that which is unreal and real kind of starts to be something you don't have time to pay attention to anymore. Uh, I guess because that it brings me some form of relief to, to think <coughs> that that could be possible. So. I, mean, I, I mean, thank you very much. And in terms of the, the, the list of, of um, Informants, should we say, who have who have helped you find your your own approach? Um, there are many incredible names um, that you mentioned, but for this idea of the kind of the the totalizing classification of the world, Melville and Perec stand out, you know, as cr crucial figures to you. Um, is is it is it fair to say that? And did you, I mean, not least with Perec's own book, Life a User's Manual, clearly, but Melville's idea of constant. Um, auto-distraction, you know, footnotes, annotation, etc., to the ongoing narrative. Were they kind of presiding spirits in an active sense, or had you kind of ingested them so fully already that you didn't need to refer to them? I mean, those, those writers are two very important writers to me. Um, I feel a lot of uh, affection for Melville. Um, like, he's kind of like a beloved person to me. I love his style of writing. Uh, I love his looseness, uh, his, his weirdness, and um, also his, 
like his obscurity within his own lifetime is a source of great fascination to me. Um, you know, Parekh as well as a kind of obsessive and person who's very interested in um, what is visual about writing and the ways in which what is, what is visual about writing can contribute to narrative, but it also creates another kind of virtual space which may or may not participate in the narrative, and he loves like going back and forth between, you know, something that that feels like a novel and some other kind of space. And we all love him for making that space. So, um, what I what I want to do is something different from what he does. But I I have so much admiration for that that kind of like it's a kind of psychedelic risk that he that he took with art making that I, I think is. Awesome. No, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much. I mean, Chloe, you, uh, I'm sure, as you uh, as you indicated earlier, would, would welcome the idea of an imagined French poet. It's very much your terrain and the kind of character and possibilities of, of, of the imagined work that would come from that. Um, but I guess you take writing in a slightly different way. Your your kind of totalizing or your attempt at multiple entries into the world would be seen in the book as a whole, perhaps, and the forms within it as a kind of cabinet of curiosities, I guess, about the world, as opposed to constructing a novel in which those structures are present. I mean, do you think of dialogue with a somnambulist as a kind of marking, making of a world, in that sense, as a collection? And, and within that, you know, how do you think about what the pieces are doing? I do, it's strange because it's, well, as you know, this was, well, you and Jess had the idea for this book, and so it's only, um, taking stock of 15 years of writing, but seeing very much sort of my, the obsessions I worked through in the essays that hadn't really made it into the fiction, and then these short stories that I, most of them I wrote when I was in Berlin, before I'd even written my first novel, and I never knew whether I was even going to be published, and you just, it's a big leap in the dark, and you just, um, you have to trust your imagination, and, and I realized I indulged sort of my, Humor, my impulses towards humor, and then also the fantastical, a bit more than maybe I've done in the longer work. But, um, but then, and um, but I think what I what I'm very happy about is the juxtaposition that somehow that, that sort of that everything fell into place, and the order mm -hmm. seems somehow very apparent, and and it's not chronological. But even though we have the stories and the essays, and then the the portrait gallery, and um, I guess maybe similar, or yeah, probably similarly to Lucy, but I love the idea of, of written portraiture, and um, so the portrait gallery at the end, but conjuring a whole existence from a few um, details or, or vignettes mm -hmm. in a person's life, mm -hmm. and um, so I guess without realizing what I I guess it is sort of, a, I hadn't thought about it as a cabinet of curiosities, but, but I do think the juxtaposition of the pieces mm -hmm. um, in the end has been a happy arrangement. Well, should we hear another read? Would you like to read from, from sure. that book uh, just a little bit? Um, I don't know if to read from the beginning of my essay on the Baroque or on, or the, maybe the a visit to Leonora Carrington's house. Right? Yes, yeah, no, that art, sounds great. Right? Please, yeah. So this is just um, a photo essay, I, just a short essay I wrote, uh, I won't read all of it, but around 
some photographs I had of, of, of Leonora Carrington. So it's called Tea and Creatures with Leonora <coughs> Carrington. Over time, even the numbers 194 on her front door seemed to grow more creaturely, the first gatekeepers one encountered upon arrival, followed by Leonora Carrington herself, swathed in gray. Her home in Mexico City was a chessboard of Mexican sunlight and European shadow. Much of the house was stone chilly and austere, but then you'd step into a patch of sun or come face to face with one of her sculptures, an eruption of life emerging from the murk. After a brief greeting, she would lead you from the entrance to the kitchen. The kettle would already, sorry, the kettle would already be on, an old metal thing rattling over the fire, while her two Siamese cats, Monsieur and Ramona, silently patrolled the premises. I took some photographs of her one afternoon as we sat having tea, struck by the procession of instruments hanging behind where Leonora was seated. Their shadows, evoking claws, shovels, tridents, horned creatures, were imbued with the fantasia sorcerer's appeal, sorry, potential, and I half expected them to come to life and start marching around. I'm not certain Leonora herself was even aware of this optical effect, which so aptly mirrored the coexistence of the fantastical and the quotidian in her own work, and I don't remember ever seeing such shadows again. Looming out of the corners of her living room, one of the duskiest regions of the house, were Leonora's oven sculptures, tall bronze witnesses to her daily life, created from smaller models and then packed off to the foundry, in her words, a great alchemical laboratory. They would return lengthened and transformed. Towering over everyone, the mask-like faces would stare out, radiating an enigmatic serenity, while down at each face a little door opened into a square compartment that could, ostensibly, be used as an oven, although I I'm not sure anyone ever tried. Lenora called this sculpture Ing. Anyway, this is the sculpture you can see. Lenora called this sculpture Ing, as in cooking, painting, seeing, a sort of golem figure that represented the very... Sorry, it represented the verb incarnate. In her world, everything might possess a soul, and even grammar becomes an entity. When posing for this photograph, Lenora stood up straight and rested a hand on Ing's arm, her hint of a smile, gracious and reserved, mimicking the creature's own. The framed cloudy window behind them gives the impression they have stepped out of a painting, emptying the canvas of its figures. The final addition to Lenora's menagerie was Yeti, a lively, lively Maltese dog who accompanied her during the last three years of her life, after her cats and husband had passed away. The last photograph I have of her was taken by my father in March 2011, two months before she died. The dog exists in the present, its gaze, its gaze fastened on the plate of biscuits on the table, while Leonora's focus is on something beyond. Clutching her cigarette, she is aware of the camera, yet doesn't acknowledge its presence. Her expression is intense and indomitable. Behind her crouches an old stove, Ink's clunkier, once functional cousin, and most importantly, the door to the kitchen, one of many charged thresholds in her home. So anyway, it was just um, these photographs I had, and then I wrote this short photo essay, but again, just trying to evoke what it was like visiting her, mm -hmm. but also um, sort of entries into a few of her, her works. No, thank you very much indeed. I mean, it's, it's really helpful that, you know, that piece is, is in, in the reading tonight because you, you've got, obviously, the, the whole body of Leonora's work, which is extraordinary. You've got the new images made that you um, are, 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 are reading and, and writing about. And then you've got, of course, the everyday life of the encounter with Leonora, who you knew very well. And Lucy, in a sense, those three 
kind of triangula the triangulation of those three points is very much present in your work in a very different way. You know, the, the, the creative work within the work, the larger creative life of the characters, and then, of course, their very messy everyday lives. I mean, the book is full of betrayals, it's full of adultery, it's really a, about normal life as well, right, alongside these manuscripts and, and private bags. So could you just speak a little bit? We're going to open it out very soon, by the way. So remember, questions, art, writing, <coughs> writing, art, all the other combos, right, very soon. Um, the tension between the, 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 the artifice of, of the creative text and the real lives of the protagonists is striking. And in a way, that it's great that you mentioned code is bad because one of the devices that you obviously pay great homage to is Ursula Le Guin. The private bag, right? Private bag, yeah. But Ursula Le Guin's carrier bag as well is very important to you. Yes. So all of this is in the bag, I guess. Yeah, this, I, I also, we forgot to mention, or I, I forgot to mention that the stuff that's in this book to read is in a bag. Uh, so there's a bag at the center of the book, and the bag has two manuscripts by the protagonist of the framing narrative, whose name is, is Aaron, and also a book that was written by Aaron's extremely creepy um, academic advisor. And this is like the one book that he's managed to churn out in his career. And it's about a French poet, um, about who there's a certain amount of debate and concern that this person didn't actually exist. But the advisor has written um, a very convinced monograph about this person. So that's in the bag too, jostling around with this, with this stuff. Um, so yeah, I think you're, I mean, I, I, I can only confirm, you know, the stuff that you're saying about how there's, you know, there's, there's art and the incredible things that come along with artifice and, and beauty and all of those things. But then there's also the, uh, the abnormal everyday lives, which are, which are so normal, which are also sort of coming up against this world of, um, of beauty and the, you know, the heights of things like neoclassical sculpture or lyric poetry and things that we want to be very yeah. lovely and uh, serene. Stuff. Well, I mean, we had a flavor of that in the first read, but should we have another you reading? Want to, you want to hear another reading? Okay. Before we open up? Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah uh, I'm going to try to give you. Okay. You guys, is it okay if we go in the mud again? Because I've only got, I've got like highest heights and then and, and muddy mud is, is what I do, yeah, basically. I so, they love the mud. Yeah, we're going to go back to the mud. Okay, so I'm going to go to the second part of the, the framing narrative. And this is, uh, so the protagonist of this book is, is a student, as you heard. And this is a passage describing in the third person uh, when Aaron comes into the university library where, sadly, she's going to have to sleep for the night. So this is to give you a sense of what the university library is like. Um, the library she entered was a gift to the university from a man whose estate had been sued after his death by his granddaughter, who maintained that he had sexually abused her for decades from the age of four on. Sorry. 
the dead man, a renowned philanthropist who had come up through the pharmaceutical industry, was also sued by his great-granddaughter, niece of the first plaintiff, for the same reason. Where Aaron presently stood at the base of the library given to the university by this individual was a 10,000 square foot chasm. This quantity of air enclosed by the front and back and floor and ceiling of the library was presumably also a bequest. It was nothing but vastness and also nothing. It stretched over Aaron's head, concluding with a dimly illuminated glass ceiling apparently intended to counterfeit a skylight and Aaron supposed therefore the sky. The philanthropist, a self-made man and alleged abuser, had engaged a famous architect to design the structure. The architect had, at first in the mid-1960s, invited librarians from around the country to inspect his plans. The librarians were not delighted by what he had in mind, which is to say the enormous hollow atrium necessitating U-shaped floors that would severely limit the interior space that could be employed for the storage of books or human-scale activities, walking, sitting, reading, writing. One consultant had said that the envisioned building was a throwback to the 19th century, not merely inconvenient, but obscene. The architect, long since a celebrity, had carried on. After his death, the architect was remembered not just for his glass buildings and love of the aesthetic crimes of modernism, but also for his sympathies with the Third Reich. The architect told his biographer that he had gotten too caught up with style, with all the young men in their uniform black leather, supple and polished, their trim, pale hair and strict formations. He said that his worst mistake had been going to Germany and liking Herr Hitler a little too much. The architect claimed that in architecture, quote, danger is one of the greatest things to use. Danger was to him a natural building material and decoration. It was a brilliant boot around which one wrapped one's lips. The library, completed in the early 1970s, possessed the void the architect had originally desired and placed at its center as a symbol of the progress of the late 20th century. It was not as if the architect had not done this thing before. His signature voids, the architect liked to say, were what allowed people to look at and recognize one another. The library's nine upper stories rising above Aaron had walkways with delicate metal railings. The railings sparkled. Below her shoes was a marble floor with elaborate stereogram patterned tiling, alternating gray, black, and white Vs. The architect believed that the illusory effect of depth produced when these tiles are seen from above mimics, as in M.C. Escher's drawings, three-dimensional forms. He believed that the tiling resembled a series of spikes pointing up at the viewer. He apparently trusted that this trompe l'oeil, a phantasm of a pit of pointed spears where there was only flatness, would discourage anyone from jumping. The image of the pit of spears built into a library to be used by students would, in the architect's opinion, be sufficient to deter self-destruction. In this, the architect celebrated in truth, mainly for his use of glass, was wrong. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, loads of ideas in the air now, all sorts of wonderful 
possibilities for art and writing, their meeting and the creative uh, pathways therein. Any thoughts from yourselves? You're all creative people, of course, you're in a young space, very creative environment in which to have thoughts and questions. Uh, it'd be wonderful to hear anything uh, that you would like to share with us as the air conditioning slightly dims, <laughs> space of possibility emerges. Um, any thoughts? Yes, please, yeah. Good question, Rebecca. Uh, you both engaged with um, older now deceased women who, uh, Leonor Harrington and Madeline Gins, who are these kind of visual artists and writers who straddle this kind of like, I would almost consider like visionary space in a certain way. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how dealing with their work, which I think both has resonances with what you both do, but also is very different. If you could speak a little bit about how that changed fiction, but also maybe how you, how maybe, if, if it changed your idea of what like a kind of writer's life or artist's life looks like, because I think you also write a lot about artists' lives and, you know, Why isn't this guy doing the conversation? Is somebody paying him? Somebody no, because we're both friends guy. with him too, so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know them, but I don't know the answer. <laughs> Such a great question. Thank you very Madeline much. So Madeline Ginz uh, was uh, an American uh, poet, philosopher, and architect. And she, with her partner, Arakawa, who's a, a painter and then also an architect as well, founded an architectural firm called the Reversible uh, Destiny. I'll just call them a group uh, right now. And they created architecture that was intended to help you to never die. This is around what decade? Well, they they founded their firm in the late 1980s, and they um, they built a, they realized a few buildings. Uh, one of them is in in Tokyo, and uh, it is shots of one of the. Uh, the apartments that's part of the lofts that they built is, is included in an, an episode of uh, the, the television show Girls, which is probably its widest um, public outing. It's very colorful. There's a lot of use of the green. That's the green screen green, as well as other bright primary colors and um, lack of right angles and different textures. I could go on and on about their um, architecture firm, but I won't do that today. It, it, essentially, they were trying to um, make you so attuned to your environment because people often um, harm themselves in the spaces that they created. Like they were trying to like make you rely on your senses more so that you wouldn't hurt yourself when you try to take a shower uh, in order to do something to your metabolism. And I, I can't recreate all the logic. It's a lot of it's very associative. But the idea was that if you lived in this in the space or their buildings, you would never die. And also you would have a kind of different formation than in the single family dwellings that we live in now. Um, but to answer Andrew's question, um, I mean, a lot of the time when you're looking at, at an artist, like, I mean, Leonora Carrington had a great life from what I can see of it. But a lot of the time when you're looking at the life of a female artist, to me it's a cautionary tale. Uh, and so Madeline Gibbs's life is a kind of cautionary tale. A lot of other people have written about like Hannah Darboven's an artist I'm very interested like in her life is a cautionary tale. Um, 
you know the the question of like how are you how are you going to address the public how are you going to have a home how are you going to relate to other people these questions are very are very fraught and also to what extent are you going to allow yourself to consider yourself an artist and how are you going to need to relate to history and other kinds of powers that may be around you, whether those powers are the government or you know uh, the uncanny or, or something else like that. Um, so when I when I think about these figures, uh, for me, I'm thinking a lot about uh, how am I how am I going to live, uh, and I I got interested in them for the tips, you know. Um, but luckily there's like more stuff that comes along with that and you get, you get the philosophy and the ideas about history and you know, other, other things about social life and, and, and other things like, like that. But my, my first reason for going to them was for, was, was for advice. Thank you. Chloe? What's strange, because my relationship with Leonora, I feel like so much of it has been posthumous, even though she was very important. Um, we were friends with her for the last 20 years of her life. Um, she lived in Mexico City and um, go over you know, Sundays for tea. And, well, my parents would most of the year, and I would when I was there. But because she keeps re-entering my life after her death too, and, and I never, when she was alive, um, well, I did mention her actually, in, in my first novel, very briefly, but but all my engagement with her work has has been after she passed away. So she's um, so I feel like I've had two very different encounters with her: a very personal, intimate friendship, and then one where I've really sort of thought a lot about her work and um, both her short stories and her paintings. But I guess um, what I've identified most with her is. Um, well, one thing that I thought a lot about is how so many of the emigres, but especially Leonora, had a lot of, well, the idea of hybridity, and she had a lot of hybrid creatures in her paintings, and for emigres, there was that sense of hybridity and living in a different language, and she um, brought the sort of Celtic mythology of her childhood and her, her nanny, but then was completely immersed in pre-Hispanic cosmologies and some of her paintings, especially the magical world of the Mayas, this incredible mural that hangs in the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. Upstairs, so many people miss it. But um, we did manage to bring it to take Liverpool. It's the first time it left the country. But um, so that, the whole idea of hybridity, and then something Leonora said, um, well, she said it in French, but she said, um, it's important to create a personal geography. And that's something I've thought a lot about because in the end, it's the country you, you, you have inside of you or wherever you are. Um, and because, I don't know, moving around a lot, even though I think now, uh, despite all its problems, <laughs> um, this is where I, I feel quite rooted. But um, the idea of really building your own geography, your personal geography. Um, so I thought a lot about that. And then also, one thing that when she was alive that we really bonded over was a strong identification with the animal spirit. And even in her short stories, that somehow um, the feral creatures in the stories, or the humans with the feral spirit, were the ones who um, she definitely identified the most with and had the most uh, 
sympathy for it. And so she loved animals more than humans most of the time. So and she was just she was uncompromising and very independent and autonomous. And, and unlike many artists, she she really hated the art world. And when she had openings in Mexico City, she'd be hiding upstairs in the office, and they'd have to just her sons would have to drag her downstairs very briefly to say hello, and then she'd run up again. But she her work was very much created in this private space, and then what happened afterwards she didn't really want to be a part of. Well, the final thing is just that she, she, she respected the mystery of the imagination, and she, she never was able to. When people would ask her, what's your work about, she hated explaining. She'd say, I don't know, it just yeah. happened. It came from somewhere else. And, um, and she believed very strongly in respecting that mystery of, of um, the source of creativity and where ideas <coughs> or these imaginary beings came from. Tremendous. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for the wonderful prompt. Um, <laughs> any more thoughts, questions? That we... Yes, please, over here. Thank you. Sorry, on the thoughts, I'll stand up. Just coming back on what Lucy was saying, but because both of you have touched on it so much, we wanted to ask about architecture and the architectures in which she experienced art. Lucy, you started by saying art writing is about our encounters of work with museums or galleries or in public spaces, which are often architectural as well and, and you know here we are as Karen said in this space which has this very particular architecture and I was just thinking about when we're thinking about art writing and the encounter how much is that about architectures as physical spaces as themselves aesthetics but also as these kind of economic and political structures that express great wealth that express nationalist ideals. Chloe, you were talking about the National Gallery and then just talking about Carrington rejecting those kind of modes of having to be in a place and show it off. So yeah, I just wanted to hear about the place of places and, and architecture and how those get written into or get written out of often uh, forms of art writing that aren't engaging with power and politics. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you could probably answer this yeah, question I mean, better. I, this is something that I write about a lot, and um, in this novel, it was important to me to. This is a, that library that I described as a real library, mm. and it's a place where a number of people uh, took their own lives in the way that um, you can imagine. Uh, and that library is associated with the university, and it's a place where people go to um, obtain an, an education and have access to information. Uh, the golden grills that were put up to prevent um, people from jumping uh, are designed to look like um, cascading streams of information as I was told, um, like zeros and ones coming down the, just flowing down the, 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 the into the space. Um, so I wanted to try to make some of that material in part because, you know, there, this book is the product of research in certain ways, but it's also just like a fever dream. It's not, um, it's not something that should be used uh, as a, if you, 
you know, as a as a kind of historical reference, it's it's kind of something else. Uh, but I wanted to try to talk about the places where people go to to try to get these things that um, you know, for some of us, are something are, are have to do with trying to like save our lives or something like that. But that they can also be spaces that that have as this this architect, um, Mr. Johnson, you know wanted to put in place that, that have danger uh, in them and, and, and danger is there as a kind of representation or stand in for the power that has, you know, has, has brought them into, into being. Um, and yet you can go in there and read um, or you can go into, into these, you know, these massive spaces. Often there's like everything is hard and there's a danger that you might fall or you might fall like several stories or something like that. I was in the the Tate Modern today and, you know, like living that a little bit. I don't know why those spaces are, are like that. Apparently it's so that we can look at one another and see the other citizens who are, who are there. Um, I don't know. But for me, those are places that I've always gone um, in part to like check in with humanity, right? Like to just be like, what, do, what, what are other people doing right now? Like, how do they feel? What are their... Uh, concerns and so as much as there's like art that's distracting us it is about seeing one another like that is why we go to those spaces to be able to look at one another in a kind of you know somewhat peaceful way so it's 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 a complicated mm -hmm. exchange that's that's going on I find with both museums and libraries that are the two main sanctuaries in life but there's such a fine balance between wanting people around you but also <laughs> not interfering too much with your own experience of the comfort of others, but also the intrusive presence sometimes. Mm. No, it's a tension. I'm feeling that tension tonight. Um, <laughs> no, no, I jest, of course. What a pleasure it is um, to be here in one space. <laughs>